Hey, Justin here. Before we jump into the story of Yahweh and Hagar and Ishmael, I want to say thank you to every one of you who've come alongside me as patrons of Holy Ghost Stories since that opportunity began two weeks ago. I'm so encouraged, so grateful. If you're not already familiar with it, Patreon is an online platform that allows people like you to support the creators they appreciate to become patrons of that work. Now, you're listening to Holy Ghost Stories right now, so here's what I know. There's a good chance you've listened before and you like what this podcast does. I love that so much. I don't have to explain to you what Holy Ghost Stories is or what I'm trying to accomplish with it because you know. Here's what you may not know. There are two reasons more things like this podcast don't exist. Number one, it's demanding. Every one of these episodes requires loads of research, story outlining, painstaking writing, editing, rewriting, uh, precise recording, sound editing, musical scoring, mixing. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of work. And there's no team. There's no research assistant. It's just me. I'm having a blast doing every bit of it, but it is a full-time commitment. It requires a concentrated devotion of time and energy. This podcast exists because I've made it my job. The reason there's not a lot out there like this podcast is just because it's really demanding. The second reason, it's dangerous. And what I mean is this, in order to devote the time and energy I just talked about, I had to quit my job, uh, rent out my house, and start eating a lot of rice in order to live for a while with no income. And apparently, that's just not a super popular thing to do. Not many people want to change their lives and, and risk everything, hoping, praying that people see the value in what they're creating, come alongside them, and partner with them to do something new. But I thought, man, telling the stories of the Old Testament in all their moody, dappled goodness would bless people uniquely enough for them to decide they wanted to give some money each month to make sure it continued. I thought maybe the reason the church doesn't have more people sharing truth in fresh and beautiful ways is that there haven't been many people willing to risk everything and try. Maybe it's just because Christians like you haven't had an opportunity like this. Well, here's an opportunity for you. You are the ones, the early adopters, the first ones to find this podcast and believe in it, and you are going to be the ones to make sure it lasts long enough for others to find it. You and I have the power to create things, to fill vacuums, to fill the world with beauty and truth. I love that so much, but we have to work together to do it, especially when it is something new. Now, to thank you for being incredible and becoming a patron of this show, I'll be giving you some great stuff. There are bonus episodes and insider notes and discussion guides. You can get copies of the scripts and vote on future stories. The list goes on. I'm excited about all of that thank you content, and I hope you are as well. But to be clear, what you get if you become a patron is more Holy Ghost stories. There are so many more stories to tell. We're nine episodes into season one. There will be 10 episodes in all, but I want to do a season two this year and and more seasons after that. I want to charm you with the stories of your forebears, Daniel and Deborah and Samson and Jael and Eve and Elijah and David and Hannah and Joseph and Abigail and Moses, the incredible stories of women and men who adventured with Yahweh the way Yahweh invites us to adventure with him. If you want a season two of Holy Ghost Stories, this is how to make it happen. Become a patron and we'll make some great stuff together. Oh, and if you join before May 3rd, which is a week after episode 10 will drop and season one will be complete, you become a patron of Holy Ghost Stories before May 3rd and you will receive a patron saint of storytelling t-shirt or sticker as my gift of thanks to you. I'm very excited about those gifts. I can't wait to get them to you. If you like Holy Ghost Stories, you're going to have so much fun being a patron. Now, 
Here is The Rescuer and the Rejects. I hope you enjoy it. We do not live in a world where power is distributed equally. We do not live in a world where everyone has the same opportunities or access or protection. And in a world like that, a world like this, God has things to say and stories to tell. Sometimes those with power and privilege, whether it comes from their skin color or their gender or their bank account, must be reminded of that power. And always, they must stand alongside those without it. This is a story about a noticing God. A God who watches how your choices affect those around you and how their choices affect you. And it's a story about his devotion in all those exchanges to whoever comes up short. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Hagar didn't want to come. She couldn't have. An enormous feast held in honor of the child who's ensured her own son's doom? No, that's an easy celebration to opt out of. Thank you very much. But there's not a lot you get to opt out of when you're a slave. And so Hagar came. She looks around at the party The wine poured liberally, the dates and the fig cakes and the bread served with goat cheese and wild honey, the people smiling and laughing. It must go something like this. Hagar watches Abraham raising his cup to make a toast. His bronze skin is an entire landscape, wrinkles running in all directions from the corners of his eyes as he smiles like desert wadis, filled now with tears of joy as he laughs. To Isaac, he says, little Isaac looking up at the sound of his name and his father's voice. The impossible child of my old age, the son. His voice falters. Why is it that emotion seems so close to the surface in your later years? A thinning of the veil, perhaps? The son Yahweh promised to me and my beautiful, elderly wife. He laughs, and Sarah can't help but join him. Funny the way Yahweh works, keeping his promise when your wife is 90 years old, wrinkled and round as a... But Sarah's face warns him off of finishing the analogy. Hagar looks on and thinks to herself that it might be okay that perhaps this strange blended family could work. Little three-year-old Isaac just weaned his aged mother and father, and them, the much younger Hagar and the 17-year-old Ishmael, the son she had with Abraham. 
It had been an unexpected moment for Hagar, that's for sure, when all those years ago, her mistress and owner, Sarah, had come to her with the proposition, a command, really. Sleep with my husband, Abraham, because I can't get pregnant. Yes, God promised. Yes, he said a whole nation would come from Abraham. But look, it's become clear that that's not going to happen through me. But you're mine. You're my property. So if Abraham has a baby with you, it's like he had one with me. What do you say? That's about how it had gone, minus the what do you say part. Hagar was a slave. She had no choice. And so she'd done it. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as a wife, which seems like an upgrade from slave, but never really worked out that way. Sarah made sure of that. And the plan had worked, such as it was. Hagar got pregnant with a son, the promise fulfilled in Ishmael. But, and perhaps this doesn't come as a surprise, from the moment she went into Abraham and then later discovered she was pregnant, things between Hagar and Sarah became complicated. Serves Sarah right as far as Hagar is concerned. Old barren failure that she was. Couldn't give her husband the one thing he wanted. And from Sarah's point of view, Hagar seems always to be looking at her with contempt, which of course she is. But it hurts when the person with power and privilege, access to your husband, a fertile womb, the precious son you could never have, doesn't steward that power and privilege well. Sarah just never has seemed to realize that however much of those things Hagar has, Sarah has more. Power is funny that way. For some reason, no one really likes to come to terms with how much of it they have. But here, today, with the music and the dancing and the food and the smiles, maybe Hagar feels hopeful. Hopeful that this mingled clan, this strange arrangement can work. Hopeful that the firstborn son she loves so dearly will flourish and be free like she never was. But all of those hopes are about to be dashed when Ishmael takes a moment of humor too far. The toddler Isaac does something silly or foolish the way toddlers are wont to do, and the teenage Ishmael makes fun of him the way teenagers are wont to do. No wonder they called this kid laughter. You can't help but laugh when you look at him. Something like that. But as Ishmael laughs at little Isaac's expense, Sarah sees it happen. Enough. How many years of passive-aggressive, no, just aggressive condescension has she endured from Hagar? The gall of this servant not to be content with her low station in life and just be grateful for what she has. And the constant presence of that boy. He looks like his mother. But he looks like Abraham as well. And she can't stand that. Isaac, on the other hand, the real child of promise, he's here now, isn't he? A living, breathing testament to Ishmael's obsolescence. They don't need him anymore, or Hagar for that matter. So when Sarah sees Ishmael mocking her son, she loses it, storms over to Abraham and screams, drive out this slave with her son. 
for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son, Isaac. Abraham's shoulders fall. For almost two decades, he's tried to keep this arrangement together, patching it and repatching it, stuffing emotions and pretending things are fine, keeping the orbits of his two women as far apart as possible, talking Sarah off the cliff when things reach ahead. But not this time. Sarah will not budge. Get them out, she demands. And the fissures in Abraham's 100-year-old face fill with water again, the stinging tears of sorrow and regret. He knows, of course, that Sarah is not the only one to blame for all this complexity, all of the drama, this love triangle or square or whatever misshapen thing it is. It's his own fault. He took Hagar. That theft is why Ishmael is here. It's why Sarah is so insecure. He knows he shouldn't have let Sarah mistreat Hagar the way she has for so very long. And he knows that if he hadn't been so short-sighted and faithless, if he hadn't abused his power all those years ago, he wouldn't be facing the possibility of his beloved son Ishmael being ripped away from him by a livid stepmother. At first, it seems, Abraham refuses. Hagar is my wife. Ishmael is my child. I will not send them away. We can make this work. This, this can be fine. One more band-aid on the broken limb. But this time, Yahweh intervenes. Abraham, out tending to the sheep that afternoon, or repairing one of the tents, or dousing the fire before he heads to bed that night, hears a voice. His voice. The voice. The same one Abraham heard all those years ago in Ur, and then under that enormous tree in Shechem, and then again in Canaan after Lot had gone toward Sodom. This voice was... Yahweh's voice. The voice he'd heard through the angels a few years ago when he and Sarah had all but given up on the promise of a child. A voice that sounds like adventure and home all at once. Do not be concerned about the boy and your slave, Yahweh says to Abraham. Do not be concerned. Whatever Sarah says to you, Listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And Ishmael? I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. In other words, you can let this son and wife of yours go, because I will not. When Hagar sees Abraham approach, she knows, surely, after Sarah's outburst, what he's about to say. He says it, and Hagar does her best to contain the storm of anger and fear and hatred and sadness raging inside of her.
Early the next morning, Hagar packs up the few things she can call her own and steps out of the tent with Ishmael to find Abraham standing there. Anguish on his face, he takes bread and a skin of water, wraps them in fabric, drapes the makeshift satchel gently across Hagar's shoulders, and then he sends them away. They head out with the sun rising over their left shoulders and Hagar leads them south, perhaps as a reflex, somewhere that way. A long distance off is her home, Egypt. Surely, as she walks alongside her son, Hagar trembles with sorrow and dread. They are heading into a wilderness, a wild place, inhabited only by animals and bands of raiding thieves, a place without topsoil and rainfall, a a desert where certain death looms should they inadvertently miss the next well. Or spring, there are precious few of those out here. Hagar knows because 17 years ago she found herself at one. She'd run away from Sarah. The abuse had just gotten to be too much. She was pregnant with Ishmael then and knew it was foolish to go. She had no plan, no destination in mind. And it was at that spring, in this same wilderness, that Yahweh spoke to her through an angel. She'd stood there, dirty and scared and destitute, and he'd looked at her belly and said, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. He told her the child she carried was a son, and he told her what to name him, Ishmael. It means... Yahweh has been attentive to your humiliation. She'd felt so seen in that moment and loved. Seen and loved, unfamiliar sensations for a slave girl. The Lord has heard your cry of affliction, he'd said to her. And she'd cried some more, but with different tears that time. And then he had talked about her son. This man will live at odds with all his brothers. Well, that certainly has happened. But where is the rest of Yahweh's promise now? They continue on, one dusty mile after another, passing beneath their sandaled feet. Hagar's memories have almost been enough to make her forget for a moment how long they've been walking and how thirsty they are. They've been stumbling along for, she's not even sure how many days. They've been good, so careful with the water, rationing it, torturing themselves every time they open the skin and close it long before their thirst is drenched. But finally, the water in the skin is gone. Hagar's throat gets drier. Her lips crack. Ishmael's too. If only there was a well. If only she had servants like Sarah, people she could send to look for one, to find water, people to help her, anyone to help her. Does Sarah even know what she has? And why does she get to be the one who has it? 
What gives her the right to that kind of privilege? Why would God give that to Sarah? Doesn't he love her, Hagar? As they trudge forward, dehydration begins its merciless work. The cells in their bodies begin to shrink as water moves out of them and into the bloodstream in an attempt to rescue their organs. Once this process begins in the brain, the situation will quickly grow critical. Enough water loss in the brain will cause confusion and eventually coma. Their kidneys get closer and closer to shutdown, leaving more and more dangerous waste in their blood. For some reason, perhaps because of strength she's developed from years of being a slave, perhaps because of hope she's carrying from that promise of Yahweh all that time ago, but for some reason, Hagar fades more slowly than Ishmael. Or that is to say, Ishmael fades more quickly than his mother. And as Hagar watches her son die, she finally decides she can't watch him die. Ishmael falls and Hagar, screaming, shouting threats at, at thirst, cannot move him on and cannot bear to witness his death. She pulls him into the shade of one of the low scrub bushes, brushes his dark hair aside, and gives him one last kiss before she stands up and moves on. But she can't do it. She cannot leave him. And she cannot watch him suffer. So she finally stops about a bow shot away, sits down, and wails. Meanwhile, Ishmael speaks, or cries, or yells, or whispers, a prayer, a final, surrendered, wholehearted prayer to the God of his mother, the God who sees me, she always used to call him, the God who sees you, she would say and touch Ishmael on the nose with a smile. Ishmael, under the marbled shade of a bush in the wilderness of Beersheba, prays to Yahweh. And all these years later, we do not know what he says, whether he prays about the promise made at that spring more than 17 years ago, whether he asks for forgiveness for the way he taunted little Isaac, wondering if he hadn't done that, they wouldn't be dying out here whether he prays for his survival or whether he prays for his mother, whose cries he can hear on the wind. No one will ever know what Ishmael says, but they will come to know this. Yahweh answers Ishmael's voice by speaking to Hagar. What's wrong, Hagar? He says. A strange question given the circumstances. Hagar spins, looking to see who's there, but even as her head swivels, she realizes that voice, the voice. Then, don't be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy from the place where he is. She would shed tears of joy, but there is no water left in her body. Get up, help the boy up, and support him for I will make him a great nation. And now Yahweh, the God who notices, the God who sees, opens Hagar's eyes. 
and she sees a well of water. Was it there all along? It couldn't have been. She runs, stumbling to it with the skin, fills it and runs back to her son to give him a drink. It's a clumsy, hurried affair, certainly, with water spilling all over his face, drenching his dark hair, washing the dust off his cheeks and his nose and his young beard. Almost like a baptism. Eventually, Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandson, a man named Moses, who grows up in Egypt where Hagar grew up generations before, will write these words after telling the story of Hagar's son. God was with the boy, and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. <laughs> she made it back after all. Over seven decades after their separation, Isaac and Ishmael will meet again. They will put aside their differences for a moment to do something that must be done by both of them. They meet to bury their father. Abraham takes his last breath at a full 175 years of age, and his two sons lay him to rest in Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah, where Sarah's body has lain for many years now. As they seal the tomb and wipe the dust from their hands, Isaac and Ishmael are 75 and 89 years old. Their bronze skin is an entire landscape, wrinkles running in all directions from the corners of their eyes, like desert wadis, surely filled now with tears of sorrow or regret or joy, or perhaps all three. And where is Hagar? Is she still living? Did she choose not to come? Or is she gone, her body at rest after a long life, those tumultuous days in the camp of Abraham, a distant echo? If she is buried, where? Does she sleep in Egypt, her home? Or in the Paran wilderness, a place that always reminded her of where Yahweh quenched her thirst, where he coupled her freedom with the strength she needed to embrace it? Hagar's final resting place will be a mystery through the ages, but not to Yahweh, not to the God who sees her.
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this telling of Hagar and Ishmael's story blessed you. Thanks once again to all of you who've jumped in on Patreon to support the show and huge props and gratitude to the raconteurs, Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Jamie, Alyssa, Sloan, Ken, Jessica, Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jamie, Nelwyn, Jack, Terry, Stevens, Liz, Patrick, Stephen, Kimmy, and Brandy. You guys are amazing. If you want to join these folks in making sure Holy Ghost Stories continues on into a season two and beyond, head to patreon.com slash holy ghost stories links in the show notes till next time